in one of her MBA classes, Professor Zoe Chance, she's also an author, she gave her business students an unusual assignment. Now they were each given a paper clip, right, and they were told they had one week to trade it up for something bigger and better. And the goal behind this exercise was to get them used to being bold in their asks, right, when you're negotiating, when you're doing business. So they could make as many trades as they wanted, and by the end of the week, they'd have to bring in their final acquisition. There would be an award for the biggest final trade. Uh, this trade-up game, you might have even heard of it, it was made famous by a guy named Kyle McDonald, who in one year, he started with a, a red paperclip, and he traded it all the way up to a house in Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, where the town made him mayor for the day and erected a giant statue of a red paperclip. Okay, that's where this exercise comes from. Now, Dr. Chance's students, they didn't have a year. Uh, they had a week, and she gave no instructions about how best to play the game, no strategic tips. The students were just sent out with their paper clips. And now a handful of players right away got suckered into making really bad trades. They traded their paper clips for junk, like a broken microwave or an old coat or something like that. But two students decided that they wanted to work together, and one challenged the other to trade up for a car. And he laughed at that idea, but the audacity of the task was intriguing to him. Now, neither of them actually needed a car, so they decided that if they managed to achieve this feat, that they would donate uh, whatever car was given to them. And so over the next few days, they went around New Haven, Connecticut, because these were students at Yale, telling people about the game that they were playing uh, and asking for help, telling them that it was for a good cause. Uh, and it was near Halloween, so they were dressed in chicken suits while they did it. <laughs> and now they made 10 trades in all, listen to this, they traded the paperclip for a gift card to a cheese shop, traded that for a box of cupcakes, which they traded for a brooch, which they traded up for a travel mug, which they traded for a gift card from a crepe restaurant, which they traded for a gift card to a nightclub, which they traded for a bottle of cologne, which they traded for a fancy camera bag, that they traded for a $1,500 oil painting. And now the final item was too big to bring to the classroom, so they asked everybody to meet them outside, and that's where they found a Volkswagen Jetta with the words bigger and better scrawled across the windshield. And uh, asking a car dealer to trade a Jetta for a painting felt like insanity to them, right? They weren't expecting to succeed in this endeavor, but they were prepared to call every single dealer in the state until they did. Can you guess how many dealers they had to call before they uh, made 35. their acquisition? 35, 1,500. <laughs> yeah, one. One. It was the first one they called. So it just so happened to be that the manager of the car dealership was a woman who had given to causes in the area already. And this project, because they were forthright about what they were doing and why they were doing it, this project inspired her to contribute again. So these two, two students, they donated the car to a refugee family in the area, a young mom from Afghanistan who had been making a two-hour commute back and forth to work. And that car was life-changing for her. And so most students, they framed this game as a transactional game. Right? They wanted to play the game right, but these students, they did something different. Right? They decided to dream big and to raise the stakes and to invite others into it with boldness and vulnerability that 
left them open to rejection, humiliation, and even mockery. Now, it turns out that when you are motivated by a bigger cause, when you're motivated by a grander mission other than just your own success, you might be more courageous than you had originally imagined. And in the end, most, if not all, responded positively to their invitation to join in this game and to help them trade up for a car that they would give away. Right? But somewhere in there, you have to believe that it's possible, right? If you're the one trading up, you have to believe that it's possible. The moment that you settle for an old code or a broken microwave, the game is over. Right? Without a hint of faith, even if you call that faith in humanity, you can't play this game, right? You can't play the game like these students did. Now in our passage today, we're going to see a crazy and bold plan get hatched by Naomi and carried out by Ruth. And it's a plan that involves vulnerability. It's a plan that involves courage. It's a plan that involves a bold ask. But the stakes are much higher than winning a classroom competition. It's their very livelihood that's on the line. And there's a lot of risk. And whereas last time we met and I talked about grace in chapter 2, this week we're looking at the other side of that coin. Uh, Ruth and Naomi, they experience God's grace through the kindness and generosity of Boaz in chapter 2. And because of that, in chapter 3, we get to see the other side of the coin, this appropriate response to grace. It starts to bubble up in Naomi, and we call that faith, right, or trust. And just like the kids said, why can we trust God? Because he loves us. Naomi is starting to trust because she's experiencing the love of God in a tangible way through this man called Boaz. So she starts thinking of the future in a more positive light, right? She starts moving away from the notion that God can only bring her bitterness, that God might actually be out for her good as well. And when you experience the loving kindness of God, or, you, or if you recognize that he loves you with a love that won't let go, you can't help but respond in faith and trust. And in that faith, in that trust, you're willing to dare. Are you willing to dare? And so we're going to look at how this grace-inspired faith motivates Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz to dare. We're going to look at two big realities about faith that emerge from this passage. Uh, the first is that faith dares to hope. Faith dares to hope. Right? And in that, faith also dares to risk. The second big one is faith dares to love. Faith dares to love. So we're going to let the book of Ruth unpack both of those statements for us this morning. Let's get into the first chapter, uh, the first verses of chapter 3. And just a quick recap, actually. In chapter 2, after Naomi and Ruth, uh, these two widows, arrive back to their hometown or to Naomi's hometown in Bethlehem, uh, they're carrying a lot of grief from all their losses, right? They've, they've lost both their husbands. And, and they're entering Naomi's hometown, carrying a lot of grief. And Ruth takes the initiative, and she goes out looking for food for her and Naomi, where Naomi isn't taking any initiative at all. And she stumbles upon Boaz's field, and it turns out that this man has heard of her kindness to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She arrived at this field just to grab the scraps that the harvesters have left behind, and Boaz ends up inviting her to lunch on the first day. 
and she, he feeds her more than she needs, and she's able to bring that food back to her mother-in-law, and he sends her away with 40 to 50 pounds of grain, uh, of the good grain, right? Not just the scraps. And like I said earlier, this act of kindness, this being seen, being given more than what's required, and being given more than what you need, this experience of grace, it affects Naomi. In chapter 1, she talks about how she went away full to this foreign land of Moab and how God brought her back empty. She tells people to call her bitter because that's the only way that God has dealt with her. Well, when Ruth comes home with this surprise, this, this grain and this meal, Naomi starts to hope again. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 3. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, it's not new that Naomi cares about Ruth. She cared about her back in chapter 1 when she wanted her to return to her uh, home area instead of coming back to her uh, with her to Bethlehem, right? She wanted her to go back to her country, to her parents, because she thought she'd have a better life there. She wanted her to find a husband for herself because the chances of that happening in a foreign land in, in, in Israel, right, for a woman who's a Moabite was slim to none. So Naomi, she saw no hope of a future for Ruth in Bethlehem. And the reality of that time was that a woman's hope and, and future were directly tied to her ties to a man, right? At that point, without a husband, women were very vulnerable. The laws mostly favored men, especially in nations that surrounded Israel. And it's a time when even just the physical strength of a husband or a father was more called upon for protection than maybe we think of today. And so, and so that was a big deal for Ruth to have that. Uh, and the value of bearing children was also prime for both men and women. Right? Naomi asked Ruth to return to Moab because she could have children there. Right? She wasn't going to find a, a man to have children with, a husband in Israel. She didn't see that as possible. But now... There's been a shift, right? Naomi says, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you'll be taken care of? In other words, shouldn't I find you a husband? Now she's entertaining this possibility that she thought was impossible when they're on their way to Israel. God's kindness, right? The kindness we saw through Boaz, it's starting to erode Naomi's bitter shell. And just in these few words, we can tell she's beginning to become more optimistic, Right? We can see the wheels are turning in her head uh, and faith in God and his goodness is awakening. Right? She's beginning to dare to hope. And she goes on in verse 2. She, it says, Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? Well, Boaz was related to the husbands of Naomi and Ruth. Uh, and we talked about how this makes him a candidate to marry one of these widows, to redeem them, to take care of them, uh, to preserve family property, to preserve the line of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Again, that's a huge value for this culture, preservation of the family name, preservation of family property. So there's a lot going on as to why it's beneficial for Ruth to be married and why it's even better for her to marry Boaz. He's available, right? He's part of her husband's family. He has resources, and definitely not to be overlooked, he's kind. He's godly. He's treated Ruth with respect. He's treated her with kindness. And that's a hard combination to find, even by today's standards, even in today's world. 
right? So by now, it's been a few weeks that Ruth has been working with Boaz, and he hasn't made any move toward marrying her. And Naomi's enjoying the benefits of his generosity, but her heart is that her young, widowed daughter-in-law would have more than just food to eat. She wants to see her loved and protected. She wants to see her grow into motherhood. She wants to see her husband's legacy continue on. In chapter 1, Ruth is looking out for Naomi. We talked about that. In chapter 2, Boaz is looking out for Naomi and Ruth. And now in chapter 3, Naomi has finally come around to put effort into looking out for Ruth. But this shift it didn't happen in a vacuum, right? This, this shift comes from a shift in her experience of God's character. It's because of God's loving kindness that Naomi has faith in him. The sun is rising on her grief. Her bitterness is giving way to faith. And her faith is allowing her to dare. Right? Faith dares to hope. Faith dares to entertain a positive future. Now, why is that? Right? Because when the God of the universe is characterized by loving kindness, right, and that becomes our baseline, Right? When, when that's our baseline, if our dreams and pursuits don't come to fruition, we know that this truth remains. Right? He is filled with loving kindness toward us. Amen. And when you see that, when you experience that, you'll be changed. How can you not be changed? It changes the way you see the entire world. Right? If God is a ruthless taskmaster, if that's how you see him, or if he's completely aloof, or if he's an impersonal deity in the sky who, and he's just aiming his curses at you as target practice on your back, what reason would you have to entertain the idea of a fulfilling future? Right? If you believe that God's just going to squash every pursuit, that's where Naomi was. What reason do we have to pursue better if we believe God's just going to crush our efforts? But if he doesn't love us, why would we trust him? Even the children know that. Right? We trust him because he loves us. If he doesn't keep his promise, why would we hope in him? The kindness of Boaz has revealed the character of God to Naomi, and it's refreshed her faith in him. Now, where's your faith this morning, right? How are you seeing God? How are you experiencing him? It's a good question for us all to ask ourselves because it can change day to day. We've seen that even in this story. Do you experience him uh, as a, a ruthless taskmaster, right? Judging your moves day to day. If you make a wrong move, he's going to punish you. Do you experience him as just absentee? Maybe he's like a dad who might send a child support check every once in, the, once in a while, but never actually checks on his kids. Do you see him as angry against you, out to thwart your plans for success? The book of Ruth shows us how we can end up in that place, right? It happens. But this scripture also shows us that if we're looking, we can find his kindness. We can find his provision. We can experience his love. And sometimes it means letting go of what we thought was ideal and finding beauty in the real. And sometimes we need to let go of what we thought was ideal and find beauty in reality. 
And this isn't the life Naomi pictured, right? She didn't picture this life for herself. In her grief, she could have easily been overcome with bitterness as it appeared God had crushed her dreams. I mean, any picture of an ideal Israelite family has gone out the window for her. She needs to let it go. She needs to embrace reality and look for what God might be doing there, right? Because you won't find God working in your ideals that never came to fruition. He's not there, right? He's found in the reality of today. That's where he works, not in the what could have been, right? God's not working in the what could have been. He works in new aspirations. He works in the what could be, right? And Naomi has moved from what could have been to what could be. Faith dares to hope. And I want to dare you to hope this morning. And knowing that even if your dreams are dashed, God's love for you remains. God's promises for you remain. But it's scary to think optimistically about the future because we put our hearts on the line. Right? But we can put our hearts on the line without putting our faith on the line. Because at the end of the day, God is good and he is fiercely committed to loving you. And if you want proof of that, you need to only look at the cross of Jesus Christ. To look at the surrendered life of God himself. And Naomi dares to hope. She sees this moment of truth and she's going to help Ruth act on it. And she comes up with a wild plan. She comes up with a questionable plan, right? One of those don't try this at home kind of plans. She tells Ruth in verse two, this evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing room floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor and don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain what you should do. Does that sound biblical to you? No. <laughs> Does that sound like a questionable plan to you? Right? You might be surprised to see that that's even in the Bible, right? That this is Ruth going and doing that. You're reading it correctly. If you're finding it questionable, you're reading it correctly, right? As we read this, we're supposed to feel some tension. But the author is setting us up. Like, we're supposed to think, wow, that's very straightforward, right? That's very forward, especially for those times. Uh, but even in our, with our modern-day sensibilities, that's a little unusual, right? Is this the best idea for her to sneak up on this man while he's sleeping? Isn't it crossing a boundary to remove any part of somebody's clothing while they're asleep? I don't know exactly what Naomi's plan was or what she was hoping would take place. But we do know that Boaz had proven his character time and time again as kind and generous. At the same time, sending Ruth out to walk outside the town at night to lie down at the feet of a man alone on the threshing room floor, it's a questionable plan, right? Things could go very wrong. She could be snatched in the night, right? Attacked on her way, walking. There were no street lights back then. She's walking outside of the town to a farm, right? If Boaz was less than a gentleman, he could have assaulted her with little to no consequence. It would have been his word against her word, and her word would mean very little. 
All that was no mystery to the original reader. This is why we need to slow down when we're reading the Bible. Right? This is not an informational book that we're reading. This is a story. Right? We need to read it like a story. We need to allow it to impact our emotions, to pique our curiosity. We need to ask the question, what is going to happen here? Right? What's Ruth going to say to this plan? Right? She's a smart woman. How's she going to respond to this? Here's what she says in verse 5. I will do everything you say. Why does she agree to this plan? Because she's willing to take a risk for the sake of Naomi. Right? This is their chance. It's obviously an imperfect plan. But this is their chance not only to find a family redeemer, but one who is kind, one who is honorable. Right? Someone who actually loves the Lord and has proven to be a good man who's not going to neglect or harm her. Right? Someone who might provide a grandchild for Naomi. And again, this is where their minds are Right, 3,000 years ago. This is what they want. This is bigger than just Ruth herself. Right? She's not doing anything morally wrong by going along with it, but it is a risky plan. Right? Faith dares to risk. Am I saying you should go and do exactly what Ruth did here? No. Right? And the Bible isn't saying that either. This is a description of faith on display. Right? Not a prescribed process for you and I to take. It's meant to inspire us. Right? This is a description, not an order. And you learn that if you take the... Uh, the how to study the Bible class, you'll learn about the differences in reading the Bible and how to know what is a descriptive text and what is a prescriptive text. Dave will teach you that. So I do recommend signing up for that class. So this is meant to inspire us. Faith is willing to hope, right? And faith is willing to take a risk because the God that we serve is a God of loving kindness, right? Our safety is found in his love. In chapter 2, we learn that Ruth has sought shelter under the wings of the Lord. That's what Boaz says to her. If your shelter is under the wings of the Lord, you don't need to fear risk, right? This is the moment of truth for Naomi and Ruth, right? This is a strike while the iron's hot kind of moment. And so Ruth tells Naomi, I'll do it. What if she said no? Well, that might just be the end of the story, right? Boaz would maybe continue to give them rations, I'm sure, but they would have missed out on the abundant plan ahead of them. That's the thing about when you risk towards something bigger and better. There's always a chance that things won't work out well, right? And that percentage varies. But when you refuse to risk for bigger and better, then there's a 100% chance that bigger and better isn't going to happen. Right? If you refuse to risk for bigger and better, you know there's a 100% chance that it's not going to happen. It requires risk. Faith dares to risk. And so that's what Ruth does. The story continues. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. Now harvest time, it was party time. This is the period that they're in, it's harvest time, that's the time of year. But it was party time, because the food was plentiful, right? It's a time for feasting. 
And so Boaz, after work, he feasts and drinks with his workers, and it's his shift to sleep on the threshing room floor, maybe to guard it against anybody who's going to come in and try to steal their stuff. So he lays down by a pile of barley, and Ruth sneaks in. She uncovers his feet, odd, and lays down. And I don't have a definitive answer on the meaning of that symbolism. I just know that it is risque, right? Uh, and I've read that laying at somebody's feet, it was a place of humility, a place even of supplication, or a place where you might put yourself, if you want to make a request for help, you put yourself at the feet of somebody who can help you. And so we know the end result, hoped for by Naomi and Ruth, is that Boaz would choose to marry Ruth. But we don't know the details that they were expecting out of this encounter. We're not told. There's no getting around that this is weird for us. This is probably awkward for them. So midnight hits, and we're told in verse 8 that Boaz was startled. He turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. Exclamation point. That's what my translation has. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. So if you're a parent or caretaker, you might have had this experience of uh, waking up in the middle of the night. It's super dark and you have this figure staring at you from next to your bed. Uh, and it's a kid who either had a nightmare or just wants to sleep in your room for the night. But I can give you a startle, right? You turn, they're just kind of like breathing on you. Has that ever happened to you? Only me? Maybe. It's a startle, right? When something, you open your eyes and somebody's right there in front of your face. So Boaz wakes up with a startle. It's dark, right? Probably pitch black. His feet are obviously cold since she uncovered them. Maybe he leans over to recover his feet and his hand feels something there, right? Someone there. And the first thing he says, who are you? She tells him, Ruth, take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. Just a chapter ago, remember Boaz told Ruth how she had sought shelter under the Lord's wings. He prayed that God would reward her for her love toward Naomi. And now here Ruth is asking Boaz to be the picture of the Lord's wings for her, to spread his wing over her, to redeem her. And the request, even though it seems vague to us, is very clear to Boaz. This is a bold ask in a bold setting. She's trying to trade up a paperclip for a car right now. How will Boaz respond? He said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. He responds to her by blessing her. He doesn't see her as unworthy at all. In fact, he thanks her for noticing him. For not going after younger men, whether they're rich or poor. Apparently, she did have other options, right? And we'll find out soon that she actually does have another option. Uh, but even before moving to Israel, she could have settled in Moab with a younger husband. Instead, for the sake of Naomi, she moved her entire life. And Boaz is humble. He sees this act by Ruth not only uh, as something that's in her interest, but also a blessing to him at all to him as well, right? Not simply because she's young, Boaz also values that she's a woman of noble character. He says that in the next verse. 
But how will he answer her request right, to marry her, to take on the responsibility of her and her mother-in-law's welfare, right? to take responsibility for their property and to propagate a family name that isn't even his own, right? See, any children that were born to them are granted to her former husband's line, right? And this is how he responds. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say. These are the very words that Ruth said to Naomi in the beginning of the chapter. I will do whatever you say. Now, Boaz is saying, I will do whatever you say to Ruth. But Boaz is a man of faith. And while Ruth's commitment to Naomi was admirable and a picture of God's love, Boaz is really the one who introduces this specific faith in Yahweh, in the Lord. Right? He exudes joy. He exudes generosity. He's healthy. He exudes love. Right? In this vignette, Naomi and Ruth are showing us that faith dares to hope, but Boaz is showing us that faith dares to love. Right? When you know God is full of loving kindness, you can dare to love others. Ruth's daring to hope met with Boaz's daring to love, right? It, it, it just was all wrapped up in God's loving kindness, in his plan, in his pursuit of Naomi and Ruth and even Boaz. But just when it seems that the story is about to have a happy ending, Boaz reveals an obstacle that Ruth might not have known about. He says in verse 12, yes, it's true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. And so we learn Boaz isn't first in line. There's someone who's closer in relation to Elimelech than he is. And by law... Boaz only has a right to redeem if this man gives up his right. See, the attractive part of redeeming is that you get all this added land to your portfolio, right? It's an inheritance. And if, if this other relative sees that benefit, he might make his claim, right? And Ruth and Naomi would be redeemed by him as well, but there's no telling who this person was. Would he be kind like Boaz? Did he love Ruth like Boaz? Did he care about Naomi's welfare? Or would he just take the land and neglect the women? Was he already married? We don't even know. Right? But it's a disappointing and disconcerting development in the story. And now that this other option is introduced, it shows us how much we actually really wanted it to be Boaz. Right? We trust Boaz. Even so, he makes the promise, if he doesn't redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. And that's a really strong statement, right? It's a promise. She gets up before it's light out to leave, and Boaz tells his people to keep it a secret that she was there, and that's protection for her, for her reputation. She did nothing scandalous, but you know how small towns are, right? That's enough appearance of scandal to start some kind of rumor. And if that other redeemer got word of that, that would be trouble for everybody. And then he tells her, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into the town. 
Generosity follows this man wherever he goes. Right? If you're around him, you're going to be blessed. Have you ever met anybody like that? If you're around them, you're going to be blessed. They never arrive empty-handed. They never let you leave empty-handed. That's who Boaz is. And this gift of grain is a statement, almost like a deposit, a seal for his promise. Now, when she gets home to Naomi, she, Naomi asks her what happened, and Ruth tells her everything. And then she mentions, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. The redemption of Ruth is truly the redemption of Naomi. Remember, she's actually our main character in this story. This is a story of God's love that won't let go, and that's what Naomi is experiencing. And that's the message that comes with this grain, just for her. Morning has dawned, and she tells Ruth, My daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest until he resolves this today. Boaz has been clear. He's going to take care of this one way or another. He's going to use his status. He's going to use his resources. He's going to use his influence for the good of Naomi and Ruth by either forcing this guy to redeem them on the spot or redeeming them himself. And so either way, something's going to happen today. And we're left at the end of this chapter, chapter hoping that for some reason this other redeemer does not want to redeem Ruth and Naomi and this land, that he wants to forfeit his claim. And it's a cliffhanger that we have until the next chapter, until next week, right? That's where we're left. And now it's easy to look at this story with its 3,000-year-old details and customs, right? Some of which we're thankful have been left behind. Some, some we're thankful are in the rearview mirror of our history, at least. Uh, it's easy to look at this and think, what does this have to do with me? Or what does this have to do with today? This is a great story, but how am I involved in this story at all? Well, what do you think the narrator is trying to show us through this story so far? Right, what's the author trying to tell us about the character of God? What does it show us about our own response to him? This book is a journey through grief. And we get to watch these characters muddle their way through. And at times it seems like God is absent. Right? Other times it seems that his hand is so evident that you couldn't deny that he's at work. But in the end, he will prove himself to be full of loving kindness, full of loyal love, full of love that won't let go. And if we can trust him in that, Right? If we can experience him in that way, if we can believe what he says about himself in these scriptures, our lives will be changed. We will be set free to hope, knowing that our safety net is always in the love of God. Right? God loves you. God loves us. Let that set you free to hope for more, because in this love, he has promised abundant life. Eternal life. Right? The greatest disappointments can't take away God's love for you, and they can't take away his promise, right? His promises. It's worth hoping for more. God loves us. May that set us free to risk for good things, right? Not for foolish things, not for harmful things, but for good things. 
Right? What's something good that you've wanted to do but haven't done because it's too risky? Right? Do you want to reach the end of your life saying, yeah, I thought about that? Or do you want to reach the end of your life saying, yes, we did that, and it was an adventure, and it was a roller coaster, and God loved us through it all? Right? God loves you. Let that free you to love. Right? Love requires sacrifice. Love is others' focus. Love also takes risks for the sake of others. Right? It can look like dressing in a chicken suit, right? trying to trade up a paperclip for a car to donate. Or it can look like Boaz taking up the cause of two widowed women, willing to sacrifice his own resources. Right? Love looks like God's plan of redemption for us. Right? Jesus giving up his own life to redeem us. We come to him empty, and he fills us beyond measure. Jesus is the greater Boaz, right, who looks on the bereft with loving kindness. Without Jesus, we were bereft. We were good as widowed, right, destined for suffering, without hope, without love. But God, in his loving kindness, sent his son to give up his life for his bride, right, to die for the sins of the world and to redeem from it a people, Right, the church. And in Christ, we have an inheritance. Right, we come to him empty, and he fills us with every blessing. If you put your faith in him, his promises are yours. Salvation Amen. is yours. Redemption is yours. Because our faith is in a loving redeemer, we can dare to hope for a better future. We can dare to risk for good things, and we can dare to love the way that he has loved us.